Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. In 1999, I spent a week in Hong Kong. My hotel overlooked the barracks where Chinese soldiers could be seen in the early morning doing their drills in the walled courtyard. But they never left those barracks. And at the time, I felt it was a good metaphor for the situation in Hong Kong. Yes, this was ultimately a Chinese territory. It had been handed over in 1997. But the mainland communist government's presence was kept deliberately light, so as not to suppress or intimidate Hong Kong's more free and prosperous culture. Those days are over, of course, as the mainland dictatorship imposes a more direct form of repressive control. This includes application of authoritarian Chinese policies on some Hong Kong residents, often used as a pretext to pick up human rights lawyers or leaders of activist organizations. With me to discuss this is Peter Baer, professor of social theory at Lingnan University in Hong Kong and a Quillette author. I spoke to him this week over Zoom about what it's like to work as an academic in Hong Kong, where unwritten rules of behavior now make it more difficult for everyone to speak their mind and exercise their political conscience. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Is it possible for an outsider, a tourist, a business person to go to Hong Kong and spend a couple of weeks there and have the same experience I did and not experience any of the profound and unsettling changes that you have described? If you are a tourist that comes to Hong Kong for a few days and you were a tourist 10, 15 years ago, it's going to be the same. It's going to be a very similar experience to you. Shops are open, banks are open. There is uh, there's a lot of action on the streets. And as far as COVID-19 is concerned, Hong Kong is a far more open city, a far freer city than most of the, the other cities in the world. So yeah, on a superficial look, Hong Kong is not much different. To, to what it was. But if you live in the city, your experience is quite different because if you live in the city, you're not concerned with the superficial aspects after a while. You're concerned with what is happening, what's happening in schools, in the universities, um, in the media, and so on. And once you get to know something about that, if you did also happen to know something about Hong Kong 10 years ago or in 1997, Um, you would see a huge difference. Could you describe some of the differences it has made in your own professional life as an academic? Well, we have to get this into some perspective because while a government crackdown is in motion across the entire city and has been since the passing of the national security law in June last year, this crackdown is far worse in some sectors than in others. The people taking the brunt of, of the repression in Hong Kong are the pro-democracy lawmakers and the civil society activists. And almost all the leaders of these groups are either in prison or on bail. And in these cases, the repression is direct. That is to say, it comes from the state itself, either the Department of Justice, 
or the National Security Police. And the National Security Police, although operating semi-autonomously and completely autonomously from the local government, uh, operating semi-autonomously because they follow guidance from Beijing's liaison office in Hong Kong, which really is a shadow government. Now, in the, in the universities, the situation is different. It's nothing as bad as what we're seeing in the Legislative Council and in Hong Kong civil society. And the other thing here is that the repression um, in the universities is not directly imposed by government. Government and the Communist Party create a climate of fear and of expectation, but the expectation is actually mediated, is executed by the university managements. It's they, the senior university managements who call the police. It's they who discipline or abandon the, the students' unions. It's the university managements that surveil their faculty. It's the union managements that jump to attention when criticized by pro-government newspapers and online mobs. Surely this has affected your social relationships and your levels of trust with people you work with. Yes, it, it has, largely because the ecology of the university. Of course, I can speak best about my own university, but I, I know a number of colleagues from other universities, and they say something similar, which is that the, the landscape is, is very atomized, very fragmented, very hermetic. People are diving into their own work, escaping into their own work, and seeking to avoid doing anything which might be seen to offend the authorities. But there's something else that I think is worth, worth noting, um, particularly for listeners of this podcast who are not university academics. And, and it's this, that only a small minority of senior managers in universities are themselves management graduates. Um, unlike administrators proper, re registrars, directors of human resources, controllers, and so forth, members of the office of the president are typically senior academics who have decided to take up an executive function. Uh, this could be as vice president or associate vice president, and the same is true for deans. Deans straddle the faculty and the presidential group now, you might imagine that professors turned managers, some of whom still publish and direct research centers, you might imagine that these people would be eager to guard academic freedom, but they're not. Well, I think uh, there's a lot of people here in the West who would not find that surprising at all, albeit <laughs> under very different circumstances. I want to take you back to an essay you wrote in Quillette back in February. You talked a little bit about what's going on in Hong Kong and China more generally, but it was really an essay about fascism and totalitarian societies and the moral responsibilities that people have in those societies. You're at least making a broad comparison between China today and the truly horrific totalitarian societies of Europe in the middle of the 20th century. What caught me a little bit was, was two things. In fascistic societies like, like Nazi Germany, most obviously there was an ethnic component to the fascist repression and full-blown exterminationism. And of course, you have that in China with the Uyghurs. But from what I can tell as an outsider, in places like Hong Kong, there is no equivalent of Kristallnacht or, or yellow armband laws. 
The other thing that I thought the comparison was strained, under Soviet communism, a lot of the crimes were doctrinal, saying the wrong thing, expressing the wrong thing about Marxism and whatnot. Is China's repression not in the category more of just simple nationalism and, and criticizing the nation and criticizing Beijing? Well, first to the ethnic aspect of it. Pretty well all the people who live in Hong Kong, whether they're mainlanders or not, are, are Han Chinese. But there is still, you could say, if it's not an ethnic difference, there is certainly a strong identity difference. I mean, the fact is that especially since 1949, the founding of the People's Republic of China, once that happened, you had a series of border controls which effectively cut off Hong Kong from the mainland. And without meaning to do so, the British harbored a de facto growing nation. And that nation is Cantonese-based, whereas the official language uh, on the mainland is Mandarin or Putonghua, as it's called. And uh, Hong Kong has a specific ecology. It has specific traditions. And of course, it had the mixing of a local culture with aspects of British colonialism, including uh, imports such as the common law. Now, these and many other things, you know, one could talk about the folk culture, the pop culture, the, the cinema culture of Hong Kong, has given Hong Kong people a very, very distinctive sense of being Hong Kong. And even when you are among both Hong Kongers and mainland people, um, especially if they are mainland tourists, and this applies, I should say, too, if, even if they come from Guangdong, which is uh, largely Cantonese-speaking, you can tell the difference um, of, of behaviors between them. So there, there is a kind of an identity difference there, unquestionably. It may not be a strictly ethnic one. Now, as far as China is concerned and you know, what, what is deemed criminal, I should say, first of all, um, and it must be obvious that when I talk about Hong Kong now, I'm not suggesting that Hong Kong is anywhere near the, the Cultural Revolution or is like the Soviet Union in the 1930s. If it were, I would not be having this conversation with you. Um, it would be a death sentence. But at the moment, you know, it's not that bad. It's not as bad as that. I mean, it's relatively very bad, but it's not as bad as that. And there is a spectrum of dictatorships and of totalitarian regimes. The issue here now is that there are a whole number of words um, and slogans which have become forbidden. For example, a revolution in our times, or there are, there are a number of them that were popular during the, the 2019 protests, and these have been prohibited. And there is a very careful sifting out of language. People are being arrested for crimes of sedition or seditious words and things like this. One of the interesting things that you've written about is just how vague some of these laws are. It's illegal to pick fights and to be querulous. I mean, who doesn't pick a fight now and then? Yes, big fights and quarrels. Well, that's one of the ways in which the, the Chinese police launched their accusations. They want to get somebody for what they consider to be a political act of disrespect, so they get them under causing nuisance or 
or whatever. And then, of course, they're also picked up for trumped-up charges of prostitution or money laundering or whatever. In other words, the, the Communist Party tries to make everything, which is a criticism of the party, into a non-party crime. It's, it's the same in Hong Kong. The, the national security law has a very spongy set of provisions, but that's on purpose. In common law systems or in systems uh, in the West, more generally, the point of law is to make it precise in order that people know what they cannot do. But in communist regimes, the point of the law is to keep the law ambiguous so that people will fear straying into crime. If you look at the actual nominal letter of the law, not just Hong Kong, I think mainland China, as I understand, they do guarantee free speech. They guarantee assembly is this whole laundry list of Jeffersonian liberties that people are allowed, but it's useless because it's circumscribed so enormously by the actual execution of it. I think you had a line you were talking about how this society has a constitution. What it doesn't have is constitutional government. Both the Sino-British Joint Declaration of 1984 and the basic law, which is Hong Kong's sub-constitution, guarantee a whole panoply of rights. Up to 2047, 50 years after the handover, what's happened in Hong Kong is that Hong Kongers have decided to take those treaty guarantees and the, the Hong Kong basic law provisions. They've decided to take them seriously and demand that they be cashed out into real law and into access to the electoral and the democratic system, an expansion of that system. And Hong Kongers have been very robust in this. The whole protest movement has been saying, in fact, these things were promised. You have not delivered. Now deliver them. And now a message from our commercial sponsor, Skillshare, the online learning community where members develop creative skills by exploring real projects. Now, I only have a minute here, so I won't be able to do justice to the thousands of different subjects you can explore through Skillshare. They range from YouTube success, script, shoot, and edit with famous tech YouTuber MKBHD, to portrait photography, shoot and edit Instagram-worthy shots. If you're interested in illustration, graphic design, creative writing, entrepreneurship, and music, Skillshare has got you covered. In my case, I'm using Skillshare to learn Java, which is actually the second programming language Skillshare has helped me with. Back in 2020, it was Python. And Skillshare is incredibly affordable, especially when compared to pricey in-person classes and workshops. An annual subscription for Skillshare is less than $10 a month. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash Quillette. That's Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E and get a free trial of their premium membership. That's Skillshare.com slash Quillette. And now back to our Quillette podcast. What triggered the 2019 protests was a extradition law, which the local government under Kerry Lamb was seeking to pass and which would, in effect, have allowed Hong Kong is to be extradited to China and to suffer Chinese justice, mainland justice, which of course is no justice at all. And before that, in 2014, there was the umbrella movement, which is rather different from 2019. In fact, it was very different. So there has been a, a kind of a consistent pattern of, of pushing to see the promises 
aspects of the treaty declarations and the basic law redeemed. You tell one story of the blind lawyer Chen Guancheng. He was a lawyer and he was harassed, arrested, and he eventually escaped to the United States. Does the Chinese government to some extent welcome these people willingly just leaving? Well, there's a matter of face involved, Communist Party face. Of course, for them, it's an utter disgrace that Hong Kongers are not what they call patriots. But of course, Hong Kongers are very patriotic. They're just patriotic to their city. That civic patriotism infuriates the Communist Party. You know, here we, here we come across another issue, which is that a lot of people, when they had the opportunity to flee the Soviet Union, did so. And in Hong Kong, there is the opportunity to leave the city as well. Um, through the, the British national overseas passports and the expansion of that passport to, to allow citizenship, and also various generous visa provisions in other countries. But it's an agonizing decision for local Hong Kongers. Expatriates like me are going home. Hong Kongers are leaving home. The emotional and psychological burden of that act is terrible. After Tiananmen Square, there was a utopian sentiment in the West, whereby we imagined that China would embrace a lot of the same democratic values that we've enjoyed in the West for generations. And when that didn't happen, one of the explanations was that, well, look, these ideas that we have, free expression and individualized civil liberties, due process and stuff, these are Western values, and they're not completely alien to the Chinese frame of mind, but what they want more is social order and they want prosperity. But it sounds like Hong Kong is very much steeped in maybe what you and I would consider traditional notions of individual-based Western values. Well, that, that's an individual aspect to it. But again, there is this, this mixture. There is filial commitment, which is lacking now in, in the West. There are memories of terrible persecution in their own country. Not they themselves necessarily. The younger ones have little contact with PRC, but they are well aware as a result of commemorations of the June the 4th massacre, Tiananmen Square, and a whole number of other things which they have read about. The People's Republic of China at various times of its history has been a charnel house. The irony about, about the PRC is that for all the complaints it makes about being humiliated by the West and by the fact that today that humiliation is over. The greatest killers, um, the greatest humiliators of Chinese people are the Communist Party and their, their supporters and their organs. So Hong Kong people, they know this and they prize their own traditions and they don't see the rights of, of freedom and of democracy as Western anymore. They see the, these as universal values, which they happen to subscribe to and are willing to defend. Unfortunately, in the, in the universities, as in other sectors, there are attempts to erode these freedoms. What we call cancel culture in the West on university campuses, a lot of it is people demanding adherence to anti-governmental movements. Abolish the police, Black Lives Matter, 
critical race theory, a lot of these are shot through with countercultural themes. And in academia, if you don't sign on to that, your career could suffer. What you're describing is more traditional authoritarian cancel culture, where you get with the state program or else. And I'm guessing that the kind of personalities who are attracted to university administration in this kind of climate, it's the same careerists you get in any system where they read the tea leaves and they simply take on the frame of mind that they think will bring them favor with the ascendant ruling class. Yes, that's very well expressed. Going back to your contrast between the West, Western universities, cancel culture there and cancel politics here, you're right that in the West, the, the pressure for cancelling speech is coming from social movements led by reckless university intellectuals themselves. Now, the state does pile in to some degree, but this is a social movement-led phenomenon. Whereas in Hong Kong, it is a classic politically-led authoritarian crackdown. But the point you make, too, about uh, careerists is really important here, I think, to understand, because from what I can see, there are very few university senior managers. I, I know who some of them are across Hong Kong, but there are very few who are real ideologues, who are true believers. Most of the people who are running the senior management, and as I say, they are mainly professors, are opportunists. They are weather vanes of the main charts. And they would serve any government provided it gave them privileges. And we see this in the firing of legal scholar Benny Tai from the University of Hong Kong in August last year, which was done by the University of Hong Kong Council, but nonetheless part of the university. We see also the crackdown on academic freedom by the same university's decision in late April of this year to sever ties with the students' union, which is very serious for the students' union because it deprives it of funding through the collection of union fees. It deprives the student unions of office space and representation on university committees. Now, the point here is that both the firing and the student clampdown were politically motivated. You know, Professor Tai was a leader of the Occupy movement in 2014 and an organizer of democratic primary elections in July 2020, which infuriated Beijing. Whereas the student unions were staunch critics of the national security law, particularly its censorship of artistic representations and speech. So this is one source, you know, it comes from the university management. Now, I do want to say immediately that there are still administrators in Hong Kong universities who are acting in good faith, who are trying to make the best of a bad situation. If one includes heads of department and programs as junior management, they have never had a, a more thankless job, and some of them are fighting for their colleagues unobtrusively. I also know of a case in another university where an academic who was verbally assailed in the pro-government press received assurances from senior managers that they supported this person. But the point about this support is that it is always done discreetly. 
there is no university-wide public defense of the principles of academic freedom. Now, one can see the, the sense of working in the shadows, but one can also see surely its peril because it provides no visible leadership, no public example of integrity and responsibility for the faculty and the staff to look to, to rally around. No articulation even of what academic freedom is. One of the commonly trafficked theories about Chinese authoritarian political culture is the idea that there is a widespread fear of a descent into chaos, because China has seen periods like that. The Taiping Rebellion, for instance, which played out around the same time as the U.S. Civil War, best estimates are something like 20 to 30 million people died. It was the biggest civil war in, in global history. That's sort of the cocktail napkin explanation for the lingering authoritarian strain in Chinese politics is that there is such a commonly held fear of society reverting to one of those chaotic periods that people will tolerate a centralized authoritarian power as an alternative to the risk of chaos. Well, I don't go along with this view. The fact is that people everywhere fear chaos, whatever society they're, they're, they're in. What people fear in Hong Kong and in China, if they don't like authoritarian government, what they fear is the Communist Party. The, the Communist Party, which refuses to allow competitive elections, which refuses to allow multiple parties to exist, which describes itself as representing the nation. You told a story in your article about uh, a guy who was getting pennies on the dollar as a tobacco farmer from communist officials, and then he found out that the communist officials liked the tobacco just fine, and they were selling it at full price on the market. And it sounds like millions of people have stories like that. We've been hearing stories about complaints in regard to corruption and incompetence, collapsing buildings, that kind of stuff, for decades now. But that doesn't seem to have translated into any groundswell, at least in, in mainland China. Do you think in our lifetime you will see China approaching any kind of true democratic state? Well, I don't want to talk too much about China because I don't know that much about it. But in, in a brief answer to your question, I would say that revolutions against a regime can never come from below. They occur as a result of state breakdown. That's how revolutions begin. They, they don't begin in the way that Marx has described them. What happens is that various parts of the, the power block in a regime start to split up, and then they mobilize discontent from below. But the Communist Party has a massive repressive apparatus, you know, the People's Armed Police, for instance, and it's easy for them to pick off rebellions or uprisings in, in the countryside and the villages. So those people don't stand a chance. A number of them have fought bravely to push back on environmental degradation and corruption. But you're going to see a change, if and when it happens, from the top. At least that would be, that would be my prediction. And now a promotional message from another podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show. The podcast where human interest and the world of ideas find their ideal balance. There's a reason Jordan's show was named a top podcast by Apple in 2018. Recent episodes have brought listeners issues like The Heartless Art of Forced Organ Harvesting, Schizophrenic Mother, A Duty Like No Other, and Why We Believe Weird Things by Quillette author Michael Shermer. 
If this sounds interesting to you, and I don't know why it wouldn't, look up The Jordan Harbinger Show wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's H-A-R-B like Bob, I-N-G-E-R. And now back to our Quillette podcast. Would it be correct to say that there's just a general lessening of, call it esprit de corps in your university since the decay of democratic principles in Hong Kong have played out? There is something that I would call compliance spread. And what I mean is that because academics are afraid of the national security law and careful to avoid falling into its more, they become afraid of other things which are not directly related to the law and may even fall outside of it. And I may have given the example of the surveillance of Lingnan's faculty by the university. And under other conditions, this would have received blowback and protest, but it hasn't this time. I'd also like to emphasize something, which is this, that it's not realistic to expect the the burden of defending academic freedom in Hong Kong universities to fall on, on all shoulders equally. The risks for locals are much higher than for expats because the costs are much greater. Emigration is a very tough choice. And I would hope that history will be very forgiving, or very understanding, I should say, of the the younger faculty in the universities, particularly people who are untenured, and also those with tenured who have young families. It's understandable that the obligation, their primary obligation, would be for for their families and for just trying to get a toehold in the university after having invested so much time and resources in getting into it. But I think it's another thing entirely when we're talking about the senior scholars, people like myself, people who are quite a bit older, people who have prestigious chairs, people who have international reputations. It is this group of people, and there are many expatriates among them, who should be doing more. In many authoritarian movements, one of the first things that happens is there's a social panic around outsiders and foreigners Of course, Jews were thrown out of senior academic positions fairly early during the Nazi years. Has there been any move amidst the nationalism of China to throw white people like yourself out of academic roles? Well, it's a mixed situation. Hong Kong universities are obsessed with global university ranking. And because of this obsession they want to try and find very good people to be in their universities. And often this means international faculty. I would say at my own university, Lingnan, there is a definite antipathy towards foreigners. This was not always the case. I've served under three different presidential administrations. The first two were governed by very intelligent, principled people. The current administration Uh, is quite different, let me put it like that. And they have a definite antipathy towards foreigners. But I would say that this is not a race, racial antipathy. This is not racist. It's more kind of a cultural antipathy. It's because foreigners, people like me, are the sorts of people who would give podcasts to Quillette. And therefore, they are the sort of people you do not want in your university. So at Lingna, uh, it is obvious, I think, to everybody that the prime qualification of being supported by the university administration is total loyalty to the presidential group. 
And so there is a great deal of brown nosing. There is a lot of head nodding and this kind of behavior. Now, eventually, that will affect the intellectual ethos, obviously, and it may well even have an impact on those much feared university rankings. But for the moment, the, the senior management at Lingnan, but not everywhere, has been quite happy to purge senior people who are foreigners of chair professor positions and higher administrative positions. Peter Baer is a research professor of social theory in the Department of Sociology and Social Policy at Lingnan University, Hong Kong. Thanks so much for being on the Quillette podcast. Thank you. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.